This is episode 531 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. We've been looking at the truths the early church held dear that allowed them to thrive during dark, troubling times. And one primary truth was their understanding of the kingdom of God and all its implications. They understood God as their king, and as king, their sovereign. Therefore, they didn't fear what the enemy may do to them or how their physical needs would be met, or quite frankly, they didn't fear anything. After all, they served the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who had repeatedly proven his faithfulness to them. So, as it says in Psalm 118 verse 6, what can man do to them? And because of this confidence they held in his kingdom, they lived in a constant state of expectation of what their king could and would do. Every day with him was like a grand adventure. But what is this often misunderstood kingdom of God? And how does living in it, like the early church did in the book of Acts, change our lives today? There is so much we will discover as we dive deeper into the kingdom of God. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We've uh, been talking about the last, uh, I don't know, couple months, looking at the early church, trying to figure out how they handled persecution in tough times versus how we're handling it or going to handle it. Every time there was an external persecution, the church got stronger. They preached the word of God with more boldness. Every time there was an internal persecution, they ended up, or trial, they ended up bonding together as a cohesive unit and fear spread among all the people. Then there's another external and another internal and another external and another internal. We've gone through that. You should have gotten um, a picture of that already. And every time the church was attacked, These Christians became dynamos for the faith. How did they do that? What did they have that we don't have? Or what did they embrace or believe that maybe we're forgetting about? And one of the key things is their view of the kingdom of God. When they understood that the Sanhedrin and even Caesar was only an earthly king, a toothless earthly king who lives in subjection to their father, the king, everything else changed. They didn't worry about things. They didn't worry about what was going to happen because God, of course, is sovereign. And if we could somehow incorporate that into our life and embrace this understanding of the kingdom, who knows? Who knows? the peace during great turmoil that we would have in order to um, be a witness and a testimony to those who are suffering and struggling like we are, yet don't have the hope we have in Christ. Now, I'll give you a little um, history lesson here. Uh, I got saved many, many years ago in, uh, gosh, 1980, long time ago, went right off to seminary. And when I was going to seminary, it was right in the middle of the... Uh, liberal uh, bastion of higher criticism at that time where uh, German theologians from the 20s and 30s and 40s pre-World War II had decided that the Word of God just contains the Word of God and is not the actual Word of God. And so therefore, it was our job to determine what was real and not real. And, and it became a you know just an incredible morass of woke liberalism, we would call it today. And that's what was that's what preachers were being trained in the Southern Baptist seminaries that I went to. Uh, then it morphed over into this kingdom now, where all of a sudden we have the we had the the seeds, just the birth pains of socialism and um, a wealth distribution, and what we call uh, critical race theory today that was just beginning, and it was all coupled up under this idea of the kingdom. Well, here's what our job is. We're to make way for the kingdom. So what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to do wealth distribution. We're supposed to really be involved in social justice. We're supposed, you know, the critical race theory and everything to make this world so wonderful, so heaven-like, so much like Christ that he will just kind of step into it from heaven and really can't tell a difference between this world and the throne that he came from. As Chuck Missler used to say, looking around, uh, not as if you'd noticed that that was happening. But that was what 
when you talked about the kingdom of God in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, that's what it was promoted as. Then all of a sudden, the dot-com craze hit in the 90s, and all of a sudden, that morphed over into the church, and pastors became entrepreneurs, and so therefore, churches were now businesses, and so you've got you know, everything you have to do on the stage in order to keep the crowds coming and they pay their tithe, which is a ticket for their seat. Then we're going to expand in mega churches and multi-campus churches. And then all of a sudden, the kingdom of God became something different. The books you read now written about the kingdom of God all have to do with you. It's you. That God is a king and you're his son, so therefore you are entitled to everything this world has to offer. You're entitled to the best cars. You're entitled to the the best homes, the best health, you're to receive your best life now. So since the early 2000s, pastors have not been talking about the kingdom of God because it got such a bad rap. But none of this describes a biblical kingdom. None of this describes what Jesus talked about. And so what I want to do is just take a a flyover view today of his kingdom and show you what he said about it, and we will look at these in detail later to figure out exactly what he's going, what what they mean. Now, before we begin, I shared this with you last week. If you're going to write anything down, you need to write this down. This is pretty much a picture of Jesus' overall teaching ministry. He began his teaching ministry, we talked about in Matthew 4, 17, preaching the same thing John the Baptist preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is imminent. Okay. Don't really know what that means, but okay. And then he continued. And I I shared with you two weeks ago, just giving you several verses, he continued all through the gospel accounts talking about the kingdom of God. Almost every parable that Jesus preached had to do with the kingdom of God. Matthew 13 lists seven of them. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like this. It's like this. Man who sells everything and buys the field. A man who finds the pearl of great price, liquidates everything in order to have that pearl. It's like a a fisherman who brings a dragnet up into the ocean, up into the shore, separates these fish. It's like a man sowing seed in his field. Everything seemed to be about this kingdom something that we're confused about, something we don't really talk about that much, but it seemed like it continually flowed through his ministry. Then when Jesus decided to send his disciples out, I want you to go preach the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? It's what he told them to preach, a preach about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is imminent. And then here are signs that follow that kingdom. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. You know all of that. So Jesus was continuing it. And then the most eye-opening verse that I shared with you last week, Acts 1-3 says that during the 40 days Jesus was raised from the dead before he ascended into heaven, he met with his disciples and taught them things pertaining to the kingdom. Before his resurrection, right after his baptism, when Jesus began preaching the kingdom of God, all during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, the kingdom of God. After his death and resurrection, between that time and the ascension, the kingdom of God. It is of profound importance to Christ, and it really should be of profound importance to us. So what is the kingdom? Um, You know, I guess it's just God's rule everywhere. All right. That's a... That's a good Sunday school answer. Um, So that's what Jesus was preaching, you know, actually bringing the good tidings about the fact that God rules everywhere. I mean, he talked about the kingdom is coming. It is imminent. It's at here. He also talked about the kingdom being right here. We also find him saying the kingdom of God is within you. So how in the world can it be future and how in the world can it be present or imminent? I mean, are there two kingdoms? Is there a a division between the two? Is there a physical kingdom or a spiritual kingdom? I mean, how does this whole thing work? Did the disciples understand it? Did the people Jesus was talking about understand it? How are we to understand it today? Is it just the hearts of men 
Okay, we live in this fallen world, in this domain controlled by Satan, but Jesus lives in our hearts, and because he lives in our hearts, I guess as we're suffering and dying, things will be okay? Or is it bigger than that? And if there's a kingdom, it has to have a king. So where is the king? And when is the king coming to set up his kingdom? If it's an earthly kingdom, we know theologically when that happens, but if it's a spiritual kingdom, when does that take place? What are the manifestations of that? How do we know that it's happening? And how can we experience that? We're going to look at every one of these questions in the weeks to come. And I think you're going to be shocked at what the Word of God says and encouraged beyond belief at how wondrous it is to be part of his kingdom. All right, well, let's make it personal since we're kind of a narcissistic society. Where do I fit in uh, in God's kingdom? If he's the king and I'm a servant or a loyal subject of him, or, or later on we find out a child and a joint heir, how do I fit in? And if I do realize that Jesus is or God is the king and that there's a kingdom, and I belong to that kingdom, and that kingdom is great, more powerful, and our God is more sovereign than anything that comes out of Washington, anything Biden can do by executive order, anything that our government can mandate, or any crisis that we go through, how does that change my life? Do I have freedom? Do I have excitement? Do I have confidence and peace? Do I experience the benefits of that kingdom now? And if so, what is that like? And by the way, if it is a kingdom, we know the rules of this kingdom. You, uh, you uh, deal with a bully by fighting back. Someone slaps you on the one cheek and you nail them. Put them in the ground to keep them from doing it again. Or as they used to say, someone brings a, a knife you, you take a gun. Someone puts one of your guys in the hospital. You put one of those guys in the morgue. We know how that works in this world. We hold on to everything that we have because we can't trust anybody out there. And the greatest betrayals we've ever had have been in our own family. Oh, I got that. Are the rules in his kingdom different? And if so, how are they different? How could they be different? When someone slaps you on the one cheek, you turn to him the other one also. How could we possibly do that? Oh, I have a king. I have a father king who's watching out for me. I understand that. Someone wants to sue me for my cloak. Ah, I give him my coat also. Wait a second. That's crazy in this world. But in his kingdom with my father, the king, I got that. He'll take care of everything. If I seek first his righteousness and his kingdom, I don't have to worry about anything that, for men especially, eats up most of our days as providers. How are we going to keep this thing going, and how's our business going to grow, and how am I going to continue to support my family? Once we understand the kingdom and the rules of the kingdom, it's incredible. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' picture of what life in his kingdom is all about. Well, does Satan have a kingdom? Are there two kingdoms at war here? Well, okay, there's a big K kingdom, and if you want to, you can call it a little K kingdom. I mean, uh, Jesus talks about rule and dominion and power that Satan has, but the fact is, does his kingdom fall up under Christ's kingdom? Is Christ sovereign over Satan? And how much power does Satan really have in your life? The answer is simple, only what God allows. You realize that? That's the book of Job. Only what God allows. So no matter what the hater of your soul throws against you, he's only allowed to do that because God in his infinite wisdom as your king and your father allows that for the testing of your soul to produce perseverance and patience to make you complete and perfect like Christ. Wow, so my biggest fears now when I understand the kingdom of God are nothing. Nothing. So if God is a king, and I do live in his kingdom, what, am I a freeloader? 
Do I just going to get my welfare check and I'm fine? I really don't want to, I can't make any more money than $11,000 a year because then the government won't give me my check and therefore I'm just going to live in this subsist, uh, lower state of economic life because I don't really care anymore. I mean, is that what we're supposed to do? Or do we have responsibilities in his kingdom? And if so, what are they? And if we have responsibilities, do we have responsibilities as just a subject, like a serf? Or, as we talked a little bit about last week, has God elevated us in his kingdom to the point of being a child of his? Not just, a, not just the best bond slave, but a child of his. And if, not, and if a child, an heir, and if an heir, as it says in Romans 8, a joint heir with Christ. Is this kingdom thing only an Old Testament deal or a New Testament deal? Or is the kingdom of God spoken about in the Old Testament? And if it is, what does it mean? And finally, finally, as we begin studying the kingdom of God, how in the world can we explain these confusing truths we're going to run across regarding this great kingdom that he has? When you find these truths confusing, it's because you put his kingdom in a box you think you understand it. You think you got it all together. Oh, I understand this kingdom. This is what it means. And well, no, it's Jesus talks about something. Oh, okay, maybe it means something else. And the kingdom is multifaceted. It's like the more you peel the layers off and see the intensity and the depth of that, of his kingdom, it becomes something that is really hard to understand. Let me just run a couple of verses by you regarding the kingdom. And then we're going to look at some verses, and I'm going to ask you, what do you think they mean? We talked about the kingdom is coming. And look what he says in Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, this is his disciples, there are some still standing here who will not taste death. Now, that's a finite number of years. Not taste death until what? Until they see the kingdom of God current, present, right now, with power. Wait, wait, wait a second. If the kingdom of God is the church, is that, is that what we're talking about here? If the kingdom of God is just heaven, is that what we're talking about here? If the kingdom of God is, is like just a group of people or a realm of, of Jesus' power, is that what we're talking about here? What does this verse even mean? Present, and not only present, but with power. Why is power, why is power so important? Because we find that every time the kingdom of God manifests itself, it manifests itself in power. This passage here, Paul is talking about coming to Corinth, and there's all these people who think they're something, and with all their words and deceiving the people, and he's going to come and show them the power that comes from being an emissary of God. The kingdom of God is not just in word, but in power. Power. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what he says. He says, then comes the end. Talking about the resurrection, talking about what happens at the end time. Then comes the end. What is the end marked by? When he, he, Christ, delivers the, God, the kingdom to his father. Oh, so it's a, it's a kingdom now that he's going to be delivering to his father. And that happens when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. Because there can only be one king, and that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not Satan, it's not our, our government officials in Washington, it's not me, and it's not you. And so when the end comes, Christ somehow delivers this kingdom to his father, and he will do that when every other supposed king, every other usurper is put in its place. Okay, I'm getting a little bit bigger picture of the kingdom here. And we have 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about the kingdom. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. That's the domain of the enemy, the domain of your flesh, and has conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, of his love. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of Christ, the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. All right, I'm not really understanding much more about the kingdom, but I'm seeing different aspects of it I haven't thought about. 
Let's get the last book of the Bible here, Revelation chapter 12. What does it say about the kingdom? Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. When? For the accuser, for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Satan and his minions and his puny little job of trying to usurp God's kingdom and usurp God's glory and using us as his tools of bringing disrespect to the Father when Satan, the accuser of the brethren, has been cast down and brought down, then the kingdom is delivered. Okay, six verses. I don't understand any more about the kingdom of God than I did in the beginning. So let's put our logical hats on, our theological hats on, and let's start asking a couple questions. If we lived in feudal England in the 14th and 15th 15th century, we would know exactly what a king is. A king is someone who rules everything. A king is someone that you feared. A king is someone you probably never got an opportunity to see, but if you did, you presented yourself at the very best that you could. You bowed down to uh, honor his sovereignty over your life right then. It is the king that allows you to have a house. The king allows you to have a plot of land that you uh, were able to raise your family on. It was a king that could take all of it away at a moment's notice. The king pretty much ruled your life. Because he was a human king, many times the kings were evil and they were selfish. And so therefore, the idea of having a king, especially for freedom-seeking people like we are in America, became kind of anathema. But when we think of a king, we think of what? President? It's not a king. He has term limits. Someone that we allegedly vote for unless the election is... uh, uh, tampered with, but that's another subject for another day. So what is a king? It's really simple. Go look it up. King is someone who rules and reigns. He rules and has a reign. He rules within his domain. In the area in which he reigns as king, he is the one who rules. It's really simple. You can say that I'm king of my family. All right, that means that you rule your family. Maybe you're the final authority in your family, but your domain is not my family. Your domain is your family as long as your family decides to live up under that. It is not a group of people. It is not a church. It is not heaven. It is not a realm of something. The kingdom of God is much bigger and greater and more powerful than that. Doing a term paper, I'm in 11th grade, or Josiah's during a term paper in ninth grade or coming up in 10th grade. So uh, the, the term paper is, what is a king and a kingdom? Okay, so I get my little Encyclopedia Britannica out or I Google it and I find out a kingdom is a territory that's just ruled by a king. It's an area in which a king reigns. Would you agree? Whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's some sort of island in the, um, in the Pacific uh, West, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's somebody in the Bible, whether it's King David or King Saul, there's a certain area in which a king reigns. Okay. Well, since God is creator of all, then his kingdom must include every created thing. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's where he rules and reigns in everything that's on the earth right now. All created beings, they all are subject to him. Great. Are you? Do you follow his mandates and his dictates in your own life? So even though he rules and reigns, there are still those, even those that belong to him, who choose to go elsewhere. Okay, so the kingdom of God is like wherever God reigns. In a sense, that's correct, because in one respect, since he created everything, then the kingdom of God is everywhere. Now we're talking New Age stuff. Kingdom of God is everywhere. It's in trees. It's in flowers. It's in plants. It's in the sunrise. And Okay, in, in a respect, in a sense, that's true. But the kingdom of God is far more complex than that. It's far more detailed than that. It's not that simple. Jesus says, repent, because God rules everywhere. No. 
Repent because someday God will rule everywhere. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. Makes no sense. And, and, and how does he come as king? Until we understand the dual nature of this kingdom. There's a physical kingdom we focus on when we look at prophecy. There's a spiritual kingdom that creates spiritual things that happened in you, like regeneration. There's a, a, an obedience side of living in his kingdom, which is sanctification, living according to the mandates of the king who now resides in you. And there's the understanding of his sovereignty and his power and his control over everything so that nothing happens in your life or my life or our nation or our culture unless God allows it. Doesn't necessarily have to approve of it, but he allows it. Shared with you about a month ago, the passages in Romans chapter 1, the three God gave them up passages where God gave mankind the freedom to experience their own sin. God, God gave them up to uh, sexual immorality. Then God gave them up to homosexuality, which, by the way, is a sign of judgment. It's not a preferred lifestyle. It's a sign of God's judgment on a culture. It happened in Greece. It happened in Rome. It's happening with us. And then finally, he gives us up to a depraved mind to actually think that men can get pregnant. And to actually say that if men can't, if you say man can't get pregnant, you get canceled. It's insane, but it becomes the law of the land in this final judgment. So, I want you to think about what you think the kingdom of God is. Have it all neatly kind of tucked away, assuming you spent some time thinking about it. And I want to see how that compares just several verses I'm going to show you, about 15 verses. We're just going to run through these relatively quick, and then uh, that's it for today. What does this mean when John the Baptist begins his ministry? And he begins by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, and here's this word, is at hand. I'm to repent because something is going to happen. Why should I repent? Because this kingdom of heaven, I don't really understand. The Jews thought it was the coming of the Messiah to set up an earthly kingdom. And Jesus said, that's not the time yet. As a matter of fact, he told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, that's not even for you to even ask what time that is. God has set that in his own power and his own authority. But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word is agnizo. And it means it is to come near. It's being brought near to approach. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is imminent. It is coming. Implied in this message, it's not here yet, but it is coming. And for that reason, I know the king's been away on a war, and the fact is he's coming back home, and his return is imminent, and we don't know when he's coming, so you guys better repent and start acting like the king's here because he is coming. Okay. Jesus preached the exact same message. First words out of his mouth in a proclamation message was the same thing John preached. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same word. It is approaching. It is being brought near. It is coming near, or you are coming near to the kingdom. When he sent his 12 disciples out, he didn't tell them, I want you to go preach on the sovereignty of God. I want you to go preach on his love and his mercy and his grace. I want you to go preach on the fact that the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ will grant you entrance into fellowship with my father. No, he didn't do any of that kind of stuff. I don't want to teach you about seven steps to have a happy marriage or how to uh, handle your finances in a godly way. I don't want you to preach any of that stuff. I want you to preach the exact same message I'm preaching. And he did. The kingdom of heaven is imminent. It's at hand. And if you remember, he gave them power to manifest that kingdom. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, freely you received, freely give. All right, so we start out with the fact the kingdom is imminent. But what about this? He's having a confrontation with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are accusing him of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan himself. 
And so Jesus says this, but if I cast out demons, note this, with the finger of God, not by the finger of God or through the finger of God, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, so much power in that one small word that we're not going to look at today. Surely the kingdom of God is now. Surely the kingdom of God is not imminent. It is not coming. But surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, that's kind of confusing. Yeah, it is. Try this one. Jesus is having this conversation with Pilate. Are you a king? Where's your kingdom? Uh, my kingdom is not of this world. Why? Because you're just talking about earthly kingdoms. And my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom now, right now, today. For if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, remember I told you the power is in small words. But now, not forever, but now my kingdom is not from here. Will your kingdom be from here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another aspect of the kingdom, the prophetic aspect of the kingdom. So the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. But the kingdom is not of this world. Anything else? Sure. Pharisees. Listen to Jesus talk continually about the kingdom, and they wanted to know when this is going to happen. They were interested. Now when... He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus, look, look, stop, stop. You've talked about nothing but the kingdom of God. When's it going to happen? Can you tell us right now? Sure. Here's what he said. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. It's not like you can, it's not like D-Day where you can sit on the, the uh, shore of France and just, oh, I see the ships coming, the kingdom on its way. It doesn't come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. Well, how do we know the kingdom is here? For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It's coming. It's here. It's within you. It's not of this world, but it's even deeper than this. He's chastising the scribes and Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. What? If the kingdom of heaven is within me, if the kingdom of heaven is coming, if the king, what? So the scribes and Pharisees can shut up the kingdom of heaven? For you neither go in yourself, I understand that, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So that there are some that are entering the kingdom, and he's preventing, the scribes and Pharisees are preventing that from happening. So how does that work with our sovereignty understanding of the kingdom of God? We will look at that in time. How important is the kingdom? Matthew chapter 24, Jesus lays out for us all the things that are going to happen at the end times. Talks about the wars and rumors of wars and deception, and this will happen and that will happen. He brings all the way down to the end, and he says this, and this gospel of the kingdom, oh my gosh, so what gospel are we supposed to be preaching? Well, salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, um, you know, that if you adopt a set of morals, that it'll give you a, your really good life right now, that, you know, Jesus is your best friend and he's your homeboy and good buddy and all the messages we preach today. That's not what Jesus said. He says there'll be a specific message that will be proclaimed. Same message he taught all through his earthly ministry. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. How many times have you read this passage and missed the gospel of the kingdom and just immediately assume, oh, that's just the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Because the kingdom is uh, being a Christian. The kingdom is going to church. The kingdom is, uh, I don't know, much Bigger than this. Or this one. Talking to the Pharisees, they're trying to trap him about the greatest commandment. Man answers right, and Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God to this man. So obviously it's like a progressive thing that's taking place in this man's heart. 
Okay. Then we have Joseph of Arimathea. Good Jewish man. Good man. Like Nicodemus that wanted to go and was a silent disciple of Jesus Christ. And I never before saw this. It's almost like these blinders came off and I just see this kingdom everywhere. I never saw this in this verse. Joseph of Arimathea a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So what are you talking about? Well, what I'm waiting on is the Messiah to come from the Jewish perspective. I'm waiting on the Messiah to come and set up a physical kingdom, and this Jesus must be it, but my Messiah was just murdered. How can this possibly take place? Luke chapter 4. When it was day, he departed and went to a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him, and he tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Why? Because it is for this purpose I have been sent. Wait wait, wait a second, Jesus. I thought that the reason why you came to earth was to offer yourself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I thought that you as the perfect sacrifice were going to give yourself over and be put on the cross, and God was going to pour his wrath and his anger against my sin on you. You were going to bear that burden on you, and, and therefore God looks at me and says, it's finished, it's over with, I, uh, I, I found no guilt in him. And, and I thought that's why you came to earth. He did. But he sums it up in talking about preaching the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God also includes what we would talk about, just the gospel message of salvation. But there's more. And it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village preaching. I don't know what we're preaching about. It doesn't say. But we do know that he's bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Wow. Preaching and bringing the wondrous, glad tidings, the good news about the kingdom of God. When have we ever heard a sermon preached about the good news of the kingdom of God? You have a king. You have a benevolent father. You have someone who can do anything he wants at any time that he wants. His foundation is based on truth and righteousness. He sees you as a member of his kingdom through grace and mercy as if you had never sinned at all. He's regenerated you, placed the Holy Spirit in you that turns you into a tabernacle and a sanctuary of God himself. What glorious good news there is knowing that you're a member of his kingdom and a child of his. And yet we walk around with our heads down, despondent, because, oh, look what life's happening to us. Look at the terrible things that are going on. Oh, what a terrible lot I have, knowing that we have a king who is more powerful than anything the enemy can throw our way. Well, how do we know there's a kingdom? I mean, how how do we know these aren't just words? Because it says in 1 Corinthians that the kingdom of God is not just words. But in power, we see that in the book of Acts. What it says here in Luke 9, 11, another summary verse. But the multitudes knew it. They followed him. And when they followed him, he received them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and manifested what only those in the kingdom of God can manifest. He healed those who had a need of healing. He then sent out his 12 disciples and the 70 with the same power he had to heal and gave them authority to do the same thing. When the 12 went out, they came back and recounted to Jesus the things that were done. When the 70 went out, they came back and said, Lord, even greater than healing, the demons who belong to that kingdom are subject to us in your name, the king. Isn't that amazing? because of the imputed righteousness you have in Christ. Is your understanding of the kingdom of God getting more crystallized, or is it splintered in a thousand different directions right now? I I, I thought I had it, but I don't. No. 
And it's so incredible. It'll give us the boldness to be like the early church, no matter what happens. And you can't hurt me. Why? <laughs> My dad's the king. I live in his kingdom. And by the way, so do you, Joe Biden. You live in his kingdom, and you're being served. You're serving him by, or he's placed you in that position by his sovereign act. And the very breath you breathe is a gift from him. He can change anything he wants at any moment. True? I just rest. Rest in him. There's an account in Luke where um, three times Jesus either asks someone to follow him or he tells them to follow him and they make excuses. Watch what he says here in two of these. He says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, but first let me go bury my father. Okay. You know, we look at that and go, I mean, it's over in three days. No, no, no. This meant let me wait until my father dies in their culture, and then I can have my inheritance, and then I can follow you on my own merit. I won't have to be dependent on you. I can just take it or leave it because I'll have my, my retirement fund all funded. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach what? Same thing I'm preaching, the kingdom of God finally sums it up about a man plowing in a field. And he says, no one, having put his hand to the plow, committed to a job, I'm, I'm, I'm plowing up this pharaoh here and looking back, oh, look at my old life, look at what life should have been like, look what life could have been like, is not fit anymore for what? The kingdom of God. You Just go to Blue Letter Bible and put in kingdom. Go down to the gospel accounts and look at the 60-something references to the kingdom, almost every single parable, and I gave you a taste of that last week, talks about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom is like. He's given instructions to the 70 as he's sending out. Well, uh, I understand that he gave instructions to the 12. They were special. No, no, this, this is the entourage. These are you and I. These are people that aren't handpicked by Jesus. This is the entourage that's following him. And here's what he says. I want you to heal the sick there and say to them, because the sick have been healed. How did this happen? What miraculous things are taking place here? Are you some sort of faith healer? No. The kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God is here now. And you can see that in the fact that this sick person was now healed. We see this in the book of Acts, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Do you remember? And that brought, a, uh, that brought on them the, the first great persecution. I mean, when they looked at Jesus, what did they think about him? Who did they think he was? This is Luke's passage here of uh, his very small version of the Sermon on the Mount or a message that was preached at another time, basically on the same topics. And look what he says. Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink and do not have an anxious mind. That defines most men today. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, but you don't live in their kingdom. And your father, who is your king, knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God where your father rules. And all these things shall be added unto you. That's the Matthew 6.33 passage. And I, I, this, is, this is my way of viewing the scripture. I see a pause here, a dramatic pause. I see Jesus communicating this. And he says that, and the people in the, in the church are the people hearing his message are probably like you and I, and they're looking at each other. They're thinking about their debts. They're thinking about their financial problems. They're thinking about everything they're struggling with. And they're going, what? And their mouth drops open. I can't believe he's saying these things. It's not going to work. And fear creeps in. So then Jesus says this, do not fear, little flock. Why? For it is your father's good pleasure, like a loving father that he is, to give you the kingdom. Wow. So, wow. So instead of being the stepchild who never really felt part of the family, I, I, I'm actually the adopted child, which I am, he actually brings me in and, and treats me as one of his own. 
like an heir and a joint heir of Christ Jesus. And so instead of me thinking everybody else is more deserving than I am, everybody else is going to get the good stuff from Jesus, and I'm just going to live in that little lean-to at the backside of of, uh, heaven beside the nail place. The fact is that, no, it's his good pleasure to give you everything that comes with the kingdom, then and now. As a matter of fact, this is not the first time he talked about that. He's summing up the ministry of John the Baptist, and he's bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And he says, the law and the prophets were until John. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. So what happens after John? Since that time, there's been one message proclaimed to the people. It's the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. Wow. So when Jesus looked at totality of Scripture, you had the law and the prophets, and they prophesied up to John, which was pointing to Christ. And then from that point on, it's Christ and his disciples and you and I proclaiming the kingdom of God. To his disciples, he said this. Got to put a Jewish hat on to understand this, or we'll look at it later. And I bestow upon you a kingdom. Really? How can you bestow upon me a kingdom? Well, because my father bestowed upon me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That is when the physical kingdom comes. I love this one. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he's between two thieves. One thief rails against him, and the other thief recognizes something. He's a good man. He's committed no sin. We're up here because of what we've done. This man has been unjustly accused. All right, that's one thing. But that's not what he recognized. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man's hanging on the cross with Jesus and recognized the man next to him had a kingdom, which means he was a king. And that's what changed everything. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, not the Savior Jesus, the good buddy Jesus, the get-me-out-of-hell-free card Jesus, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10. So what in the world is the kingdom of God? Ah, It's multifaceted. It has a spiritual dimension. It has a um, physical dimension. It has a spiritual dimension and also a physical dimension that actually um, somehow cross over into the same realm. That right now, I have the king through the person of the Holy Spirit living in me. I have his word and his mandates, and I have his promises. Nevertheless, I'm physically in the domain of Satan right now. But the father that I follow, I mean, where did Peter get the boldness to say, you choose whether we should obey you, earthly king, toothless king, or obey God the Father, you know? And for us, we can't help but tell what we've seen in her. It was no... It was no debate with them because they understood who the greatest king was. And he can do anything he wants to do. And he's promised us from last week to always do what is good and best and right, even if it's painful. And even those things that are painful, all those things work together for good for those who love God and are the called, which is you and I, according to his mandates, his purpose, his dictates, and his sovereignty. If I could learn to rest in that. If a court case goes against me, my God, you could have done it any way you didn't, but my king decided to go this way. So, all right, Lord, on you. I belong to you. You obviously know what's best. I don't see it. I don't understand it. And it's pretty hurtful here, but nevertheless, it's on you. I rest in your kingship, your sovereignty as a member of your kingdom that not only is coming, but is here and lives in us and is coming in its fruition as a literal kingdom when Jesus comes and sets up his millennial reign, his thousand-year reign where he's going to show the usurper, going to show the lost people what it could have been like in the Garden of Eden when God ruled and reigned before they went their own way. 
glorious times ahead, are they not? As a review, if you get anything out of today, kingdom is where God rules in a domain in which he reigns. He reigns everywhere and he rules everywhere, but he gives you the freedom to follow him or not follow him. We follow him, it is a life of blessing. We choose not to follow him, and eventually he gives us up to the consequences of our own sin. He takes us in places that maybe we don't want to go. Rejoice when you face trials and tribulations. Why? Our culture says it's our best life now. Our culture is wrong. Rejoice when you face trials and tribulations because they're there for the perfecting of your faith to make you perfect and complete in all things. And we are, according to Colossians 2, complete in him who lives in us. What is there to fear? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Remember these. This week, check your email, because I'm going to be sending some stuff out this week that will help you understand a little bit more what this kingdom is like. Listen, I'm firmly convinced that this is the primary truth the early church lived by. I don't have to worry about giving everything that I own to the church, to people I don't even know, and right after Pentecost, maybe I can't even speak the same language as them. I don't, I don't have a problem giving everything I have to God because my king says if I seek him first and his righteousness, he'll meet all my needs, and I believe my king. I don't have a problem going to jail because if my king wants to get me out of jail, he'll just make the guards go to sleep and the doors will open up or some angel will tap me in the side because I'm in such peace like Peter. I'm asleep in the middle of the jail. Take me out through four doors and drop me off where prayer meeting's going on. Do you remember? My king can do anything he wants. And what he wants from me is to follow him. And when I do, I'm invincible because I'm empowered by the king. And when I don't, I suffer the consequences of my own actions, which I have done many times in my life, and it's really stupid to do. But it builds confidence when you understand who your king is and what the far reaches of his kingdom entail. Amen? Let me pray.